Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. French President Emmanuel Macron has had a complicated couple of weeks. On the one hand, China's President Xi gave him a red carpet treatment in Beijing, where Macron again made his case for European strategic sovereignty, code for independence from the U.S., which was music to Chinese ears. On the other hand, stirred up widespread anger by insisting that Europe should not get involved in Taiwan. He was burned in effigy in Paris during massive protests against pension reform, shouted down by hecklers in Amsterdam who challenged his democratic credentials, and lectured by even the Iranian government, of all people, to respect the rights of protesters in the streets. His approval rating is below 30%, and the most recent polls suggest that if the election were held today instead of two years ago, Marie Le Pen would beat him in a landslide. What's going on? There seem to be only two possibilities. Either Macron has lost his way, which is dangerous for a president of an important country with four years left on his mandate, or he's playing a long game that only he understands. My guest today has strong views on those alternatives. Pierre Lelouch is a former French parliamentarian, government minister, diplomat, as well as a widely published author in France. Welcome, Pierre, to New Thinking for a New World. Thank you, Alan. Let's start with the China trip. You've written recently that Macron had hoped to turn China into the peacemaker in Ukraine and to demonstrate that there is a unified European global strategy. So first China, and then we'll get to Ukraine. Well, it was um, fundamentally about Ukraine, really. And second, about uh, Europe and China. Uh, Strangely enough, he brought with him the lady who is in charge of the commission, uh, Ursula von der Leyen. And as you know, she's much closer to American view. She, as, as a matter of fact, she's campaigning to be the next secretary general of NATO. So it was a strange combination because, uh, as you know, France was the first country to recognize communist China back in 1964. And I assume that de Gaulle uh, didn't want to be accompanied by anyone, certainly not the commission. And uh, Macron is bizarre. He wanted to go with Scholz in November and Scholz refused. And now he, he went with Ursula von der Leyen in this uh, bizarre visit. So the main objective when he started was to use China as the mediator to end the Ukrainian conflict, which was in my view, a complete misreading of Chinese policy, even though the Chinese are not militarily allied to the Russians, they are their friends. And they are with the Russians, undergoing a major global strategy to diminish the weight of the Americans and the global Western system. So they are trying to build an alternative Russian-Chinese BRICS economic geostrategic alternative to the American domination. That is the objective of Xi Jinping. 
Now, in expecting that the Chinese would suddenly bear on the Russian and force them to end the war was a complete miscalculation. And assuming they did, of course, Putin would never accept to concede to the Chinese publicly and look like he is a vassal of the, of the Chinese. So the, that was dead end. And it was dead end. He, he, he got nothing from the Chinese and he got one additional rebuff from uh, Putin who said that they didn't want any mediation, okay? Then came the other subject, which was EU-Chinese relation. And therefore, there are two conflicting messages because Europe um, is completely split on the issue of China, as it was before the war on Ukraine, completely split on, on Russia. On China, there is a, a view that's very close to the American view, that is that China is a systemic rival and one has to change completely uh, the economic approach, a commercial approach and so on, and be very careful about the Chinese stealing technology and so on and so forth. And the French who now uh, have taken this equidistant uh, position, and even more than equidistant, say, the way, the way Macron phrased it is that we are not going to follow American confrontation with China leading to Chinese overreaction. So they are, Macron is sort of implying that the Americans are responsible for the tension with China and that he doesn't want Europe to follow that escalation on the American side. And of course, that, that was music to, to Xi because Xi Jinping wants to drive a wedge between Europe and America on China. And he could not have dreamt of anything better than a, a major open uh, break between France and the US and Europe and the US on the Chinese question. And that's what he got. So the obvious question is, what is Macron thinking? I don't want you to be his psychoanalyst, but maybe I do want you to be a psychoanalyst. What, what is driving him at this point in your perception? It's a combination of things, uh, but most probably personal hubris. He's a very interesting guy because he has never run, before he was elected president, he, he never run into any election, ne never. Uh, he was a high civil servant and a banker. And he managed somehow to understand that the system, the political system, right and left, was essentially fatigued. And there was a space in which he could offer something different. And that's what he did uh, with the help of very big companies and the help of a whole team of McKinsey who worked for him during the campaign. So it was very much an American-type campaign, highly liberal, highly European. Now, personally, he is really a Europeanist. He, he, he probably believes that France is too small now uh, compared to the global challenges. He wants, uh, he dreams of a Europe would be a big France independent from the, the rising blocks, that is, the American, the Russian, the Chinese. And that's what he calls European sovereignty. He started in 2017, right after his first election, with his famous Sorbonne speech, in which he outlined his vision of a sovereign uh, Europe. Now, I happen to believe that the concept is completely empty, because sovereignty is really the national state 
and elected government of a national state. There is not a, a common sovereignty of 30 independent sovereign states. Europe is a collection of independent states. There is no such thing as a United State of Europe. So saying that there is a European sovereignty actually assumes that you have a federation in making and that France will be the driving seat of its federation, of this federation, outlining a vision of European autonomy, i.e. independence in trade, industry, technology, military from the ally, America, but also from the potential rival that is Russia, China, China and the others. So it's a it's a vision of a of a Europe that would be sort of uh, independent technologically and economically, and essentially non-aligned, one of the block of the next world system. That's his vision. That's exactly what the Chinese are expecting Europeans to think, that there will be several poles in what they call the multi, the future multipolar world, and they want Europe to be as far as possible distanced from the United States. Um, so in what Macron says, there's a number of true things. Uh, Europe is too weak technologically. It is too dependent on the dollar and the extraterritorial American application of American law. It is much too dependent on American military power for its security. So in an ideal world, this is what you would want to do. Build up some kind of Western uh, Europe, strong technologically, economically, and militarily, except that this view is not shared by anyone else in Europe. Certainly not the Bulls and the Poles and the Czechs and so on, the East who are scared of the Russians. Certainly not by the German who want to continue to rely on the Americans. So I don't know with, with whom Macron intends to build that sovereignty. Um, I think it's, it's a lot of hot air. Sounds good. I mean, all of, you know, a lot of Europe, uh, voters in France are fundamentally pro-European. They like the idea, but it doesn't fly, unfortunately, I would say. He actually has even talked recently about Europe becoming a third superpower. Right. Which, frankly, to my ears, sounds delusional, uh, but that may be unfair. Does Europe mm -hmm. have that potential from where it sits today? Well, uh, from where we are now, as potential on paper, yes, in terms of the population, space, and resources, except that you don't pull them because you have independent national states with different visions. Take defense. There is a war going on in, in, in Ukraine for more than a year now. Where are the increase of defense budgets? Where are they? in Poland, but where else? There has been an announcement of a new program military law in France, but most of the increases are postponed to after the next presidential election. In the meantime, they, you know what they are doing? They are cutting down on the number of armored vehicles that are being built because the uh, main emphasis of the new budget will be on nuclear and not on conventional forces. I haven't seen any significant increase of defense spending 
I haven't seen any increase of defense capability on the part of Europeans. So we, we, we continue to talk about a sovereign Europe and an independent, uh, you know, self-reliant Europe. It doesn't happen. On technology, we're way behind. Where are the European GAFA? Where are they? Where, where are the uh, AI uh, companies in Europe? We're all highly dependent on the US, and we are turning into a, a theater of warfare between Chinese and American companies. And that's a big danger we're in. On trade, uh, we are uh, some of the Europeans, especially the Germans, are highly dependent on, on the Chinese market. So there is no unity in trade policy. So yes, the potential is there, but the pulling together all of these different strings in an efficient federation is not happening, and it probably will never happen. Uh, Europe is not the United States of America, and it will never be. It is a combination of independent old nations, old nations, uh, who put together some of the sovereignty, but it doesn't. It does not. Uh, uh, create a unified power. I mean, some some of us may regret it, but that's the way it is. And uh, you know, I've worked on these issues for many decades. I've looked at it very closely, and there is something called national interest and national elections. And each country tends to, you know, take immigration for example. Immigration is the central, central, absolute central issue for for Europe. We are facing Africa, which is going to double its population in the next generation. We are flooded by massive immigration waves. Do you think there is a coordination of immigration policy? Absolutely not. You have Italy and Greece that receive the migrants, and then they go all over the place. No unification of policy because of national politics. That's the way it is. But in Beijing, Macron repeatedly tried to speak as though he was speaking for Europe. That may be why he brought his traveling partner with. Uh, specifically, a, a quote. He said, the question Europeans need to answer, is it in our interest to accelerate a crisis on Taiwan? No. The worst thing would be to think that we Europeans must become followers, followers on this topic and take our cue from the US agenda and a Chinese overreaction. So he didn't say we the French, he said we the Europeans. So he's, it's, it, I don't know if it's the royal we, but it's the European we that he was speaking, yet he's not empowered to speak for Europe and clearly doesn't speak for Europe. How does he resolve the contradiction? I don't think he cares about that. He wanted to, to be on the map, on the world media map, and he's on the map. I mean, part of his um, policy which is sheer agitation, is to be on the map. He's on the map. And it's this, what he said over Taiwan is very ironical because most of the fighting, the fighter aircraft that you see in Taiwan are actually French-made, the Mirage 2000. Uh, they used to be sold in the old days and they're no longer sold. But it's strange because France is actually a Pacific power. We have Caledonia, we have Tahiti. We, Macron himself went to Australia in 2018. That's when he sold the submarine. They were later canceled by the Australians. Massive humiliation made in England and in America. 
but he claimed that France had to be an Indo-Pacific power, using its resources from uh, Djibouti all the way to um, uh, New Caledonia and Tahiti. And there, where it comes to Taiwan, all of a sudden, he says we're neutral and we should get involved in this. And it's hard to do that when at the same time, you rely entirely on the United States in Ukraine. Were it not for the Americans, Ukraine would have been lost already for, for many months. So it's an impossible, incoherent policy in which, on the one hand, Macron is super Atlanticist when it comes to Ukraine, is all in favor of Ukrainian victory, all in favor of following American leadership in Europe. And at the same time, in the Pacific, is implying that it is the U.S. confrontation policy with China, which may lead to Chinese overreaction, and therefore we don't want to be caught into that. So there is a neutrality on one side, super Atlanticism on the other. It's completely incoherent. Either you, you claim to be independent, and in this case, you're independent in Ukraine as you're independent in Asia, and you have your own policy, or you, you, you follow your ally, and in this case, you cannot ask the American to defend Europe in Ukraine and not count on the Europeans if there is a problem in the Pacific. Especially at a time, please notice, when you had a week ago a meeting of foreign ministers of Japan, Korea, um, Australia, and New Zealand meeting in Brussels with the NATO ministers. And apparently, you have a joint AUKUS NATO summit in July where. Uh, of course, the American strategy is to try to encircle uh, this now uh, uh, friendship, so-called friendship alliance between Chinese and Russia. American is trying to, to create a new containment policy around China and Russia with NATO on the one hand, focus on the other. So it, it's very awkward for France to say, you know, I'm part of one, but I don't want part of the other. It's incoherent. Unless, again... You claim and you can define an autonomous policy for France alone, but not for the rest of Europe, because the rest of Europe count on the U.S. And, for example, the Balts are being attacked by the Chinese, as you know, because some of the Baltic countries defend Taiwan. One, one last point before we go to the Tara. One last one on foreign policy. If you look at the balance sheet of, of Macron in foreign policy, frankly, it is tragic. And in all my years uh, working on these issues, I have never seen France subjected to so many uh, um, slap in the face in such a small amount of time. Uh, look, we've been expelled from Africa by a bunch of dictators supported by the Russian Wagner Group. We've been expelled from the Pacific by AUKUS and the cancellation of a submarine deal in Australia in a very, very nasty way. We uh, made fool of ourselves with Putin in Ukraine. And now we're calling for neutrality in Taiwan and, 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 and creating havoc, not just in America, but in Europe as well. With all this, and, you know, I, and, and then he keeps talking about European sovereignty as a smoke screen to conceal this succession 
of diplomatic uh, uh, defeats. There's no other word. I'm very sad to see my country subjected to so many consecutive um, um, mishaps, let's say. Do you know leaders that sound like these? Leaders, young or old, who are changing the world? Who are not content with what is and are willing to work for what could be? If so, nominate them for the Talberg SNF Eliasson Global Leadership Prize at talbergprize.org. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G prize.org. And that's why I want to raise the dollar. While in China, he talked about Europe needs to reduce its dependence on the dollar. Uh, the only, he didn't offer a suggestion. It wasn't on favor of the euro, favor of this, favor of that. It was about move away from the dollar. Although, as you know, uh, the French company Total recently shifted some of its sales in the Middle East uh, to one away from dollar. Uh, is this part of his move, his Macron's move to China? Is it just anti-American? Oh, look, the, the issue of the dollar was first raised by General de Gaulle 50 years ago. He, he called it the um, insuperable um, dominance of the dollar. And he was right, except that uh, even with the creation of euro, we never managed to create an alternative to the dollar. Second point. I was the one in France in 2016 to open the debate in a parliamentary report on the question of the extraterritorial application of sanctions. And U.S. sanctions have been extremely bloody on French and European companies. To the tune of 25 billion euros were paid to American Treasury as a result of the implementation, unilateral implementation of secondary sanctions against European companies. One day they will use sanction on, on this or that, and we're caught in the middle of this. And it's extremely disagreeable. And yes, he has a point, and I, I actually share this point. I, I made this point in my country. We, we need to change that. And, and, and of course, America doesn't want to discuss that. Uh, we had recently another problem with the Biden administration our great ally on Ukraine, at the same time that we're fighting the war in Ukraine, they invent something called the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a massively um, a protectionist policy, industrial protectionist policy, which, can, which is going to hurt European companies. And that's not fair unless you want a trade war. So America is perfectly capable of leading a war so against the Russian and at the same time conducting another war with its ally on the economic front, using the dollar, using sanctions. And that's extremely uh, fatigant. It's, um, you know, it, it, it's a pain. And, and uh, yes, we have a point in raising this and, and wanting to, to have a more balanced relationship. Now, that's one thing. Is our interest, however, to, to favor or help the creation of a Chinese alternative system based on the Yuan and a bunch of countries who want to escape uh, the dollar because they want to escape uh, Western foreign policy. So when you have a bunch of people like Iran, Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, other countries in the South, uh, uh, Turkey, 
meeting Russia and, and China on building an alternative financial system, then you are in a different world. What has happened during that trip is, yes, Total was authorized to begin to pay delivery of gas to China in yuan and not in dollars. And it's the first time that one of the major Western majors actually playing the game that the Chinese want to create, which is an alternative financial system. But my American friends should, should ask themselves why it's coming to that. The overuse of sanction all the time on any subject and tramping over your allies all the time. Uh, at, at the end of the day, it makes a lot of people unhappy. And if some big guy in the room comes in and says, hey, you, you know, let's do something else, you know, that might be tempting for a number of countries. This is what's happening now. Is Macron right to, to support this? Uh, I don't think so. I, I would expect uh, um, a conversation with the American president to try to modify the way the dollar system is working. But to be honest with you, it has never worked in the past in part because of the way your system works. The sanctions are taken by the Congress. Once they are voted by the Congress, you cannot touch them. The executive branch says, oh, but it's not me, it's a Congress, I cannot do anything about it. So at the end of the day, you have a highly incoherent policy that hurts your friends and that facilitates the job the Chinese and the, and the Russian to actually go around the system. And this is what's happening. It's a new world. And in, in, in many ways, it's due to you and to American bad policy. Oh, that, in, in fairness, I agree with all of that. Let's shift to, very briefly, because we have a time limit, to domestic policy. There's a, an idea around that part of what's driving Macron running in the world, doing all these things, is that he's not particularly welcome in the streets of Paris that his pension reform put aside the technicalities because no one cares about the technicalities in one sense, but has become a symbol of, of his hubris, of his arrogance. And he's, it's been rejected by most French. Yeah, it's turned into a personal hatred now against him. This was a bad reform at the wrong time because there's a war, because there's inflation. Uh, they were not able to explain it properly, to show that it was fair. The number of mistakes in the way it was done. But the, the, the worst part was probably to try to ram it through the system without a proper parliamentary examination. And they used all kinds of procedural gimmicks to make sure that the parliament actually never voted on the, on the bill. Um, and that's bad. They never voted on it because it, it was rammed through with this vote of no confidence um, article, uh, 49.3 of the Constitution, which essentially avoids a discussion of the law. Uh, the result is that there's a lot of frustration. 70% of the people are against this reform. There's a, a personal rejection of the man who is considered a solitary uh, disrespectful for position. And, you know, uh, France, uh, when I was a cabinet minister, and we had at the time a very difficult pension reform with millions of people on the street, I always remember President Sarkozy telling his minister around the table, 
look, remember, we're in a country where they like to cut the heads of kings. And Macron better remembers this because he had already the yellow vest and they were after him. I was on the street. I saw, I saw what they were saying about him. And it's happening again now. So I think he's pushing it a little too far. Uh, and 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 he doesn't probably doesn't remember that he was elected only because Marine Le Pen was against him. So he had a majority because people didn't want Marine Le Pen as president. With very high abstention level, presidential election was thirty percent abstention. Legislative election that followed more than fifty percent abstention, and no majority. So he doesn't have a majority in the house. He has a profound rejection in the streets. And this uh, pension reform, this badly organized run pension reform, has turned a social problem into a crisis of legitimacy for the executive branch and for the president himself. And he should be very careful about that because there's still four years to go and nobody knows how he can run those four years. of course, he's pretending now that pension reform is behind it, that the pro- political process, the parliament pros- parliamentary process was done, the consultation was done, which is not true. But, you know, it's behind him. He wants to move on to other subjects. But can he move on to any other subject is a big issue. I kind of doubt it. Uh, the only chance he has is that there is no alternative. The right is in shambles. The socialist is in shambles. The only guys left in town are the extreme left and the extreme right. And that, of course, is his survival capital. He survives on the extremes. And that's not healthy at all for the country because it doesn't per- permit us uh, to face the real issues in front of us, which is, you know, what do we do about defense? What do we do with, with energy policy? What do we do with that with the EU, changing EU? Uh, do we continue and pretend there is no problem? What do we do with immigration? And of course, what do we do with the war? Those are all great questions. And I have one final question. He has four years left on his mandate, as you said. Is he a good enough politician to reinvent himself in a way that turns this mess into something less messy? Strangely, he's not a politician. He has no roots in the country. And his his parliamentarians have no roots in the country. You can can spend hours thinking in your head and ask uh, commentators and journalists, what is Macronism? What is the doctrine? What it's about? Nobody knows. It's a big mystery. It's all functioning of on his personal brilliance. He is definitely bright. He's a good talker. Is he deep? I don't know. Is he a statesman? I doubt it. What I know is that he's a solitary man surrounded with second rate. Most of the guys, most of his ministers are totally unknown. There are two or three ministers that the rest are known. So prime minister he had were totally unknown, totally unknown before he chose them. Uh, he believed that he's Jupiter, that he's smarter than everybody else, that he elected, that he was elected not just once but twice because he's so bright. 
And therefore, he knows, right? He's superior to the earth. And when you have that kind of guy, you have a problem. Because I, I don't know how to talk to him. I don't know how anybody can talk. And he does what he thinks. Uh, and you know, he's on the news all the time. And uh, does it advance French national interest? I doubt it. I think um, this regime will probably um, weaken my country. And, and I'm very upset about that. When we started, I asked you if Macron has lost his way or is he playing a very clever long game? If I can distill the last half hour of conversation, I think you've told me that he's lost his way but doesn't know it. He thinks he's playing a very clever long game, but he's not, which at the end of the day leaves France and its allies in a very difficult place. I hope you're wrong. <laughs> I suspect you're right. Uh, but thank you very much for this conversation, and um, we'll, we'll do it again soon. Yeah, I hope uh, the next time we do it, we have better news from France. A bientôt, Alain. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.